This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Investigative leads. Janelle Jockways. Mid-80s SF films. And Homo Florescensis Survival. What comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. Robin, I've detected a rattle of dice with my sense trouble. I'm going to spend a point. I think that was the thump of miniatures. Okay. All right. Okay. Just going to refresh my health with a few Doritos. And uh, maybe I'll refresh my stability by gazing upon the benevolent countenance of Peter Frampton coming alive, welcoming us into a clueful segment of the Gaming Hut, courtesy of beloved Patreon backer Elias Helfer, who says, I see this Hanrahan fellow a way to refer to beloved gumshoe designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, has written about different types of leads in gumshoe. And this is a thing that he did for Page XX for the Paul Grant Press website called A Taxonomy of Investigations. Elias continues, I'd be interested in hearing you expand on that topic, not least how you use them when preparing a game and how to differentiate free clues from ones with a cost that latter bit has always been the most difficult part of the system for me, Elias, to grok. And so, Robin, everyone can pause and read Gara's piece, or we could maybe just summarize it here. What do you think? Right. We can recapitulate and argue with it. Exactly. <laughs> so, so what we're going to get in here is that unlike some other games that are ruled by the iron fist of a single line developer who controls all the different iterations of a core rule system, Gumshoe permits different designers to approach the game in different ways. The upside of this is that you get quite different approaches to scenario design. Ken's approach is different than mine. Uh, Gar's is a little different. I think it's a little closer to mine. And also a different approach to how acquiring information works. So the upside of that is a multiplicity of different ways of doing things. Downside is it's somehow a little confusing sometimes. And this is the one thing where... If I ruled Gumshoe with an iron fist, I would be tougher on. I would issue an edict. Yes. 
And so as we go through that, let, let's let's blow the headline first of all. Let's let's spoil everything. The times when you should, in my opinion, as the original designer of the game, and I know there are early examples where I seem to do something different. The number of times <laughs> when you should charge people for just straight up information is never. You should never do that. That these point spans are for a benefit on top of other, other than just information. And any adventure that I've done in the last eight years, at least, does that. Some of the very early ones seem to give you a cost for information in my scenarios, but they actually allow you to pay money to get information in a cooler and more impressive and often sort of socially relevant way. And so there, there is supposed to be an extra ego benefit on that. And then later I stopped doing even that because it's confusing. So, however, other designers do like point spend information. Graham Walmsley uses that a lot in his scenarios, which are meant to be punishing uh, mostly. But for me, I feel that the actual principle is it is never interesting to fail to get information. That said, Ken, let's go through now what Gar defines as leads and clues and hints. Right. Gar, uh, as the term taxonomy indicates, breaks out the various types of information available in a gumshoe scenario into four classes. And those classes are leads, clues, hints, and details. And this is where Gar, I think, is doing not so much Gar as scenario designer, but I think Gar's GM hat is also being worn during this segment, because you look at a scenario Gar does, he does not differentiate in the scenario between these things. He just sort of lays out a shotgun pattern of, of information that then, uh, when you look at it, resolves into the familiar trail of clues from Gumshoe. But the most important category in his taxonomy is leads, because that is the mechanical basis of Gumshoe that a clue will not just give you information and make you feel happy about yourself, but it will point you to another scene. It is literally a lead that takes you into another scene. And, you know, the classic example is, oh, we found a dropped matchbook from this bar. So we obviously have to go to that bar. We don't know what's in the bar. We don't know if it's the bartender that's bad or a patron or the torch singer at the bar. We know nothing except bar, obviously, next scene, let go. And that is the, you know, at the most basic and bald, what a lead does. And I don't think that there's anything, you know, particularly controversial about that, except that guard differentiates between zero point leads, right. core leads and leads you have to spend for core leads are the ones that are necessary to get you through the scenario at all. Right. So and they lead you to another core scene. Right. Yes. And if you're not necessarily another core scene, you may not be in a core scene. They lead you to another scene anyway. But you know, if, if you've got to get to the windmill, the windmill clue is going to be a core lead uh, at some point because it's going to lead you to the windmill. Is that fair to that, say? That's correct. Yeah. And then the next one is what Gar called a, a zero point lead. And I would just call a lead to an alternate scene. Mm -hmm. So when I'm designing a scenario and I've just finished designing 17 of them for <laughs> Casilda's song, I make sure that there's one sort of default way through the scenario because you got to be able to, you know, there needs to be at least one way through the scenario. And those are the core scenes. But then on top of that, there are the alternate scenes. So there's a bunch of different possible orders that you can do the scenes in. And, and the alternate scenes, therefore, because the core scenes already exist, you could theoretically skip, although mm -hmm. there's fun stuff in that. Why would you do that? Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. And sometimes it's a little arbitrary, in fact. 
which one is the core scene and which one is the alternate scene, since the alt- you could, in a lot of cases, just go through the whole adventure through only hitting alternate scenes mm-hmm. because it's supposed to be fun whatever way you go. And the more important thing, the whole reason for this in the first place is so that players feel that they have choices in what to investigate and, and where to go, that they are determining the structure of the adventure as they go along rather than just being led from A to B to C. Right. Not going down the primrose path, right? Right. They have options. And again, in theory, as you say, if you just literally have to go to the windmill to fight the monster in the windmill, all the alternates are going to funnel you eventually to the windmill unless you've somehow, you know, called in an airstrike on the windmill, which, you know, given A players and B the universe, I can't rule out. There are also some uh, adventures that have alternate endings yeah right where there's more than one possible ending and but a more compact one will funnel you toward a a single final right scene so gar proposes that there are one point leads which are like alternate leads except you have to pay a point to go there i would suggest never doing that right i mean sort i think i'm going to go through this sort of steel manning gar i don't necessarily you know i don't necessarily use this in my own gaming but i could imagine a thing where there are three ways to get knowledge of the windmill you can either you know go down to the i don't know the newspaper office and the newspaper guys are like all these murders are very narrow windmill and you're okay thanks very much that's your core lead then your zero point lead wouldn't take you uh, directly to the windmill it takes you off to the farmer so you know you found you know wagon tracks and you can figure out which kind of wagon took it and there's only one guy in the county that has that wagon you go to his house and he's like yeah i don't know ever since that windmill started glowing the cows have been awful spooked and all right that was good too and a one point lead i think is a lead that you have to spend a social currency for the game to feel realistic so you have to spend cop talk if you're going to the cops to get them to uh share with you their surveillance uh, information you have to spend a a point of uh, high society or credit rating if you're going to the creepy billionaire social club that also has information about the the what happened at the same windmill a hundred years ago right something I could see a system by which you if the core already exists for free that making you spend a point to feel special and I think I'm going to come back to this over and over and over again right yeah is that I could see spending a point of of just admission that says, Oh, don't worry. I'm the dilettante. I can go to the social club or don't worry. I'm the, you know, former cop. I can go to the cop shop. And that gives the player a little moment in this, in the spotlight for their character. And uh, because you're not going to spend a a whole ton of high society investigating a windmill for gosh sakes, it doesn't actually penalize you in a real measurable way. The same way that spending say, you know, um, notice might, right? Right. I would never do it for realism, but I would do it for feeling special. Mm -hmm. And I guess another way to look at that is perhaps the one point spend that takes you to an alternate scene, that alternate scene is somehow better. Right. Better can be that you get to feel cool and go to a neat cocktail party, or possibly you're spending for the benefit of once you get to the cocktail party, it turns out that your eccentric host has a particular shotgun that would be more helpful when you go to the windmill. Mm-hmm. Right. He says, well, my ancestor used this a hundred years ago. I'd hoped it would never come to pass, but you seem like a good sport, Nigel. Why don't you take it? Yes. And so that would be a perfectly acceptable use of the 
the one point thing. Although you could just as easily make that an alternate scene that you can get to, and then you spend the point while you're there. Right. Then, you, then you're spending the high society to talk to the host as opposed to spending the point to get access to the cocktail party. Exactly. Absolutely true. So from leads, we go to clues. And I think you have literally just elided the difference there, Robin. Clues are any immediately relevant information for the investigation. And again, so the difference between a, a clue and a lead is a clue gives you Vital information about the investigation, bad windmill, invulnerable monster in it, but it doesn't necessarily take you a different scene yet. You just picked up that vital information. So right. the the lead is windmill. Mm-hmm. The clue is monster. Right. Yeah. Uh, fundamentally. Yeah. And so, uh, again, we break them into core clues, which are very clearly explained in every iteration of Gumshoe. These are the ones that you need to not physically travel through the story, but to put together what's going on in even the most rudimentary sense. Ah, monster. And then Gar again distinguishes between zero point clues and clues that you have to spend for. And I think that the super good shotgun that we talked about in terms of the last scene is the one point uh, clue that you would have to spend for. Right. uh, Because it's not just a clue. It's a shotgun. It's a shotgun. You get a bonus on a general ability use or a bonus on damage later. So you have a concrete benefit. That's not informational. Right. And so between the core and the one point clue, Gar has the zero point clue, which is what, Robin? Just another piece of information that gives you context or, you know, allows you to fill in what is going on. Because what Gumshoe does is it gives you way more information than a, another mystery game might. And then you have to be the one who puts it all together. And so that would be the pattern of a uh, hundred year windmill glowings. And it would be the old uh, legends passed down from the first farmers in the area. And it would be crop rotation patterns that everyone's like, it's odd that, you know, no one plants, you know, up against that windmill, you know, during the winter months in such and such a, a period. And they're like, Oh, it's as though the, they've learned to avoid the windmill. I wonder what's about that. And those would all be clues that would do that. Exactly. Yes. And then uh, Gar also posits that you can do uh, one point clues, which is an option that other designers take and that I've stopped taking. Right. And we covered what that is previously. And yeah. so then Gar moves from leads and clues into hints, which I think the intention is that it's it doesn't give you information about the thing, but it gives you information about what you should find out about the thing. Is that correct? I guess so, yes. I, I don't slice these distinctions that fine while I'm writing a scenario. No. Yeah, I mean, we, we generally never have, but again, Gar's building a taxonomy, and he's trying to... Again, I feel like using his GM's hat, say that clues feel different in play than hints feel... And that, you know, and I guess in this taxonomy, you could build up a number of hints and deduce a clue from it, right? Right. So I guess if you discover another murder, now, well, who killed this person? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is the monster, that's not a a hint, that's a clue. But if it's a, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody else killed the person to cover up the monster, I guess that's a, that's a hint that this is something that, I guess it's sort of a information that makes the mystery bigger and sort of obfuscates or, or widens the scope of the mystery. Right. And then finally, guard just has details, which he puts in because I exist. And those are <laughs> literally just to show off. They let the player show off by knowing them fictively. And they let the writer or the GM show off that they've done the work. And therefore it's more fun to talk about crop rotation around the windmill than it just is. I don't know. Old Zeke says everyone's scared of the windmill. Right. It'd be the, the architecture of the windmill. And right. Oh, this, this was obviously by, by this architect who studied under this person. And it doesn't, those things 
don't turn out to answer the central question of the mystery. They don't widen this central question. But as you're giving them to the players, they might. And mm. so that is also sort of a layer of almost sort of red herring clues because that's the information that you have to sift out to get to the core narrative line that you're going to be resolving at the windmill or wherever else. Right. And like I say, details exist because of me or not necessarily because of me, but I certainly revel in them. And that for me is, is much of the fun and much of when I say, do you want to spend what that is? As I, as I've said in my versions of gumshoe, this is a sign that the GM holds up and says, I have something cool. Do you want to buy it? Uh, if the player says, can I spend chemistry in this scene, in this moment, they're holding up a sign that says, I want to do something cool with this chemistry point that I've bought. And the GM is expected to say, yes, you certainly can. And then ideally from the text of the adventure, but possibly from the recesses of their brain, come up with something cool that chemistry would let you find out about the, the murder victim or about the soil of the farms around the windmill or whatever it is that they are investigating. Or, or preferably even like, okay, now you have a chemical test that will allow you to detect the spore of the monster in, right. in other scenes. Yes. So that it's not just... Again, information, but it's an advantage that you carry forward uh, into the uh, narrative. Right. And that in play, Robin, although I have been steelmanning Gar throughout, as I always will, in play, I feel like I generally default to spends get you leverage, they get you positive reactions from the NPC if it's an interpersonal spend, as opposed to just, you got the information and now they want you never to darken their door again. Now they're actually invested and have convinced themselves they're on your side or that they, or that you're a, a good fella, whatever it happens to be. Or it gives you literally, as you say, a shotgun. It gives you, you know, oh, if uh, I spend physics, I can build a ray that will let us uh, make the monster visible and then we'll be able to shoot it with this sh cool shotgun we just got. Right. Because in fact, it's actually a tell to charge someone for information because that's saying this turns out to be less important information that just costs you more. So, so you want to, uh, that's the thing that you are as a GM or a designer are trying to avoid is the point where the player goes, I spent for that. Mm -hmm. and yeah. That's why I tightened up the, what I give up. Yeah. Things. And, and that, and that is a very important consideration to keep in mind that if you are doing point spends for information or for any sort of investigative ability, no one should walk away unhappy from that exchange. Because if someone held up a sign that says, I want to buy something cool. And what you've given them is fun facts about wavelengths. They may say, well, that was fun and all, but I spent for that. And then you, you really do need to sort of think either the, the, the information you give them has to be so compelling. And maybe it's a piece of information that you think normally in a scenario, you wouldn't put that down, but I know my players and I know that Emily will uh, piece this together. If I give her this piece of information, her character is spent. I'll do that. And so. She's not buying that piece of relatively innocuous information. She's buying the moment for the player to be able to slot that into uh, her pre-existing knowledge and abilities and, and say, aha, I know what the situation is, and then go forward with it. And that is, again, something that you have to decide at the table based on your individual players. And no scenario writer is ever going to be able to predict, you know, what your individual crew of players are capable of putting together or desirous of putting together even. Right. Because even a long, very detailed scenario is still a blueprint, still a skeleton, mm -hmm. which is right. answering as many questions as it can for you, but ultimately will 
be run by a GM who will hopefully, you know, compensate for what you didn't think that their players would do. And the main thing that if you're designing a gumshoe adventure, say, for example, for the community program, is the place where you're most likely to sort of run aground and have a problem in a gumshoe adventure is in the core and alternate clues that move you between scenes. Because if players don't spot them or don't feel sufficiently motivated to use them, that's when the storyline stops. So you really right. want to look at those. So um, you really want to bulletproof those leads in Hanrahan terms. Right. Well, now that we've mentioned Gar's name yet again, and oh, I just did it another time. We've done enough Gar mentioning. Now let's listen to a commercial and see what's on the other side of it. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one player, one GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. They can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press website. Store or drive through RPG. Welcome once more to Ken and or Robin talk with someone else. And today the someone else is a titan of the role playing game industry and of uh, fantasy art in general. Janelle Jaquez, author of the first great campaign, Caverns of Thracia one of the inventors of the role-playing game magazine and one of the foundational figures in how we illustrated fantasy role-playing games from the jump. You know your career probably better than I do, although I spent an awful lot of my time you know, paying attention to it back in the day, playing with cardboard heroes and the like. So what was it like being you know, among the gods? Well, um, hi. <laughs> Not certain I can live up to that, but we'll try. We really didn't, or I didn't really see myself as being among the gods. I mean, I was a college student. I had discovered D&D &D in late 1975 and didn't actually get to play it till 1976. And not long after that, the part of me that says, hey, let's be creative and do things. Oh, look, nobody's doing anything for D&D like fandom publishing, at least we couldn't, didn't know of any in my um, remote little college in southern Michigan. So a couple of my friends and I, we decided to start our own magazine. And that became the Dungeoneer and coined the word Dungeoneer, which apparently everyone uses like a drop of a hat these days. Mm -hmm. So we just started, we started the magazine, and I think the first one was eight pages, and of digest size, and we sent the first hundred copies out for free. 
And that, of course, is uh, speaking of setting the tone for everything that sets the tone for the role playing game industry in general, which is publication is for your friends and people, you know, and then incidentally to make money. Yeah. I mean, I did end up with a little money at the end because I sold the magazine to someone else. But by then, most of my friends, we were all trying to graduate from college. And so they had fallen away to doing things like classwork. Mm-hmm. And I was a ma- I was an art student, which meant not only was I doing the same amount of classwork, but I was also doing, as I was doing classwork, I was doing studio work. Right. So by the end of my senior year in college, it was... I have to make choices. If, if I want to graduate, i got to cut things out of my life. And I essentially cut out fun things like working at a radio station. And then uh, I had to get rid of this magazine because I can't do it in my schoolwork. And then there was dating. But that kind of gave it up itself regardless. <laughs> yeah. Again, speaking of setting precedents for gamers to follow for centuries after. And then at what point did you move from magazine publishing and art into design was it judges guild drew you in that way well i got in well i got into doing um gaming literally because i saw this that mag there was this magazine called the space gamer and they had a request for artists Mm -hmm. and i was doing art i was an art major and I was doing art for small publications around college like um the school paper and programs, um, some graphic design, the newspaper, just small things like that. So that's where I got my skill set from for publishing. And then we published The Dungeoneer and we all contributed something to the magazine. One of my friends came up with magic items, another wrote the fiction, we each did a monster, and then I wrote this tiny adventure called Fachalrak's Tomb that I pulled out of my, um, my one of my notebooks that I had already designed. And just drew a simple map for it, and then we typed up the what I had already written for it, and that was the first. Well, we thought it was the first published adventure. I've discovered right late, much much later that I was like the third. Right. Well, there's no shame in that game. Uh, everyone no. was sort of inventing their own yeah. version of the hobby there was in simul- various groups. Yeah, simultaneous invention was going on everywhere. Yeah, real Darwin and Wallace stuff. Yep. And then I graduated from college, finished my degree. And I went on to become a paste-up artist for a small local print company, doing just regular paste-up of flyers, business cards, things like that. And then their foot traffic went away because they didn't have any... They were, their street they were on was blocked off by sewer work. Mm-hmm. And so they let me go, and I was unemployed. So I think I started doing some contract work for some small companies like um, Martian Metals. Right. And then my friend, who had, or the person who had bought the magazine from me, he had gone to Judges Guild. He had taken the Dungeoneer to Judges Guild. And they said, well, why don't you come down and interview with us? And so I did. And I walked away with having sold some small pieces of artwork to them and a job. Great. And the job was staff artist at the time? And then you... Staff artist and designer. And designer. They okay. Designer, artist and designer. And they just loaded me up with work for the next year. Some of the projects I wanted to work on because they were my own. Mm -hmm. Others, you know, I kind of pushed back against. But one of them ended up being like, you know, one of the top, you know, one of the three from Judges Guild that Mm -hmm. you get. And Caverns of Thracia specifically for me at the time when I, and this is when I was a 
just running my own games. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading Caverns of Thracia and being struck by the almost archaeological quality of it, that it has this sort of layered backstory that the deeper into the dungeon you go, the more you learn about, you know, the earlier versions of the dungeon, like digging up Troy and finding the various levels of the city. Was that something that was coming out of your own play? Were you buddies with an archaeologist and you just read the same books I'd read when I was a teenager? I was, a, well, I was an art major in college and as an art major, one of the things you take is a lot of art history. Mm -hmm. And I was deeply, the, the idea that things had previous life, particularly architecture, that has always been one of the things that intrigued me. So that if you find a building existing in the world today, chances are, if it's older than 10 years, 20 years, it's had a previous life. Mm -hmm. And this would be particularly true of the Middle Ages, where buildings were built, again, in the Middle Ages and then in the modern day, they've been everything. Right. And there's that history in them, and it's built into their structure, and it's built into how they're rebuilt. And that's kind of the approach I took for when I was doing dungeons, is that places had history, and you could see that history. Yeah, and that was, I mean... Again, you talk about Darwin and Wallace, but someone publishes Origin of Species and someone is the Ann Wallace. And I feel like you, Caverns of Thracia really sort of is the opening gun of dungeons that make any kind of sense, as opposed to just being fun places to keep bugbears or whatever. Now, so some people would argue with you and say that's Dark Tower. Well, I, I liked Dark Tower just fine, but I think this is where my start with Earth mm -hmm. prejudices come from, because Caverns of Thracia was... Very clearly Greek mythology yep, and Greek sort of history based in a way that Dark Tower felt more... It was more of Egyptian. Exactly, yeah. Or, and still more conventional fantasy to a degree mm -hmm. than, than Caverns was. Can you talk about the work you did for Flying Buffalo with City Books or with um, sure. uh, Central Casting, which I understand... Fans of central casting are about to get even more excited. Um, my work in role-play games has had like three distinct phases. The first was college through my work with Judges Guild. Mm -hmm. um, and so th one of the things that people should understand, everything I did for Judges Guild, I did in the space of a year. It's just uncanny. It was one of the most productive years of my life. Of anybody's and, life in the industry, anyway. And then I went freelance after that and worked for other companies. At the tail end of that was going to work for a video game company, or a toy company called Coleco. Mm -hmm. And I spent five years there, and during that time I became a video game designer and a manager of a video game department. And then after that, I ended up freelance again. Mm -hmm. And that was the period from 1986 through mid-1993, where I did central casting and where I did the city books, a lot of stuff for TSR and a lot of stuff for other publishers as an artist and as a designer and an editor. So that was how I kept turning the crank. The city books, I stumbled into them because one of my friends was Mike Stackpole. Yeah. And he was one of the active people at, at Flying Buffalo during the pretty much most of its life, um, especially its early life. And Flying Buffalo in the early 80s had started doing the city books. And I think the first one and maybe the second one were done by Larry DeTilio. And then the third one um, was produced by what they call Blade, which was basically Mike Stackpole and Liz Danforth mm -hmm. doing the production. 
and they needed other writers because Larry wasn't involved with it anymore. Mm-hmm. And they invited me to write for it. And I did one one setting for City Book 3, I think they called, it was called Nightside. Mm-hmm. And then a couple years later, um, Rick Loomis came back to me and said, um, we need to have someone take over the production of the book series. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. And that's where I learned how to do page production and uh, book editing and art directing. To take a book from start to finish, they had a concept for it. It was about travel, and I already had a few articles in hand to complete production-ready turnkey book. Right. And I did everything in between. I didn't write all of it. I wrote a couple, but I sourced all the content and produced a book for them. And then they came back to me again for um, City Book 5 and again for City Book 6. And by the end of City Book 6, I said, you know, these are fun but I'm not making enough money to support myself doing them. Mm-hmm. And that was why I walked away from it. It was fun, but... Right, yeah. And at the same time, I had a concept where I was... When I was in college, one of the things I did was I wrote... Create up a, what I call a previous history system. I had seen something in the Dragon magazine. It was just a real quick, short table on rolling character ancestry, usually what your parents did. right. And I began there. And I started writing my own tables. And I had my friends play with them. And they complained about too many people's villages being burned to the ground. I ended up selling that to Judges Guild. um, And they produced it in their magazine. And then I kind of walked away from it for a while. I was working for Coleco. But at the same time, I was generating content for it. Because it was still my idea. And I wanted to expand on it and play with it. And then... When I was no longer, when I was self-employed again, I was looking for projects that I could sell to other people. I had this history system. So I approached a company called Task Force Games that had been founded by some of the people who had been with another game company called Yukinto. Right. Yeah. And so I proposed this book to them and they said, yeah, do it. And so that became the first book of Central Casting, which was a character background generator, uh, a life path generator for fantasy characters. And the product changed publishers. The publishers were acquired by a couple other people, some other people. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing two more books, um, one for fantasy or one for science fiction and one for contemporary games. Yeah. And those three books, that three volume set, you've, ex- I mean, I've, I've seen the, the notebooks that you have here at the show, they have to be have expanded vastly from those original volumes, uh, well, right? I've, about, um, about five years ago, I'm now in my third phase mm-hmm. of um, developing for uh, Tabletop. I've had, after my first phase of, tele- of working as a freelancer, I went to work for TSR as an artist for several years, and then from there hopped into the, uh, back into the video game industry for a number of years. Right. After leaving the video game industry again, um, I started just doing freelance stuff and finally got to the point where I said, I'm ready to tackle central casting again. And I started just, I gave myself permission to write, mm-hmm. not thinking in terms of an editor or producer, just write all the content you want. And what I ended up with was about 10 times 
the amount of content that was in the original book. Yeah. And I should say, the first of the original books, the fantasy book. Mm -hmm. And I just gave myself permission to write. And then when I came back, I edited it myself, came back through, then probably was not as harsh an editor as I should have been. And then I went through and did the page production. And right now I'm in the process of testing it. Right. And it sits in three large notebooks at about 1,250 pages that are, you know, the pre-press pages. Yeah, right. And uh, it looks great. I've, I've seen your notebooks. And your notion is that you're going to be kickstarting them at some point. At some point. This summer, perhaps. Hopefully this summer. Now, um, is there a janelgequays.net or something that people can follow no, you on or pay pe- attention? How can your legion of eager devotees get advance notice of when the Kickstarter goes live? Well, well right now, we'll probably figure out something else, but right now I basically have a professional account on Facebook okay. called... Um, it's Janelle Jakeway's artist. Okay. And so it's public. If you're on Facebook, you can find it. There you go. I'm probably going to be on some other social media eventually, but not the one, you know, not the dying bird one. Right. I'm there, but it's not, but it's not your main focus. It's not where right. I'm going to be much longer. Fantastic. Well, obviously everyone's going to be really thrilled to welcome you back. I, like I said, Caverns of Thracia had a huge impact on me just as a beginning dungeon master to say nothing of my quote-unquote professional career. And the other thing that you contributed to my career is Jackway's Corollary or Jackway's Corollary to Asimov's Law. Uh, Those of you who are not writers, Asimov's Law of being a writer is keep your day job. And Jackway's Corollary was... If you don't keep your day job, marry someone who has a good job and can pay the bills. Right. And uh, I have uh, attempted to live my life by your strictures, not just as a designer, but as a person who likes to keep uh, the mortgage paid and the lights on. I hear so, that. for everything you've done for the art form, everything you've done for my personal enjoyment of the hobby, thank you so much, and thanks so much for being on the show with us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's whales mellow by joining such time-traveling Patreon backers as... Merrick Shinkariol. Ryan McClelland. Theron Bratz. Pedro Garcia and Kevin H. 
The carpet is increasingly garish purple, and probably there's uh, stripes in it now, or cool spangly diamonds. The popcorn is burbling along even more powerfully. I think new candy is beginning to come on. So we eagerly scoop all of that up into our arms and race over the sticky floors to the center aisle, center seats of the Cinema Hut, where the whir of the projector welcomes us to the science fiction cinema essentials film festival that we've been running here in the virtual pages of Ken and Robin for what seems like, well, decades, because it has been decades. We're in the eighties, but Robin, I understand that today the theater is showing a double feature. They're doing a a rep show, right? We're hitting a rep cinema first because due to a clerical error and I'm sorry, we had to fire another assistant. (laughs) I did not mention Videodrome when we were talking about uh, 1983, when I was talking about scanners saying, well, there's another one that's really more the Cronenberg masterpiece in this vein. What I was thinking of was Videodrome, in which James Woods plays, in suitably sleazy uh, reptilian Woods fashion, the head of a a local television network named Max Wren, who discovers the existence of a, a dark and nasty and sadistic underground video channel, essentially the pre-internet version of the dark web and tries to figure out how to take advantage of what it's got for his commercial station. If you're from Toronto, uh, it's extra fun because that's based on a then thriving local channel called City TV. And Max Ran is sort of like an evil satanic version of its impresario Moses Neimer. And it uh, has Debbie Harry uh, famously as a, a figure who sort of draws ran into the world of Videodrome. It's got a couple of really famous, alarming body horror or horror SF images like the television tube expanding to suck him in and is part, obviously, of Cronenberg's long-running exploration of how cultural change can be essentially a force that alters and warps society just the way that hard technology does in you know any canonical work of uh, science fiction. So it's It's body horror as well as science fiction. You want to check all of the trigger warnings, uh, all the content warnings on that one before you check it out. All the trigger warnings. You have to check those out. But it is, I think, still Cronenberg's masterpiece in his sort of centerline Cronenbergian style. And I think uh, to put it into the context of science fiction, uh, Videodrome, uh, while it feels more horror when you're watching it or, or more, oh my God, when you're watching it, but the combination of this sort of sentient evil cyberspace and the bio cyber interface or the bio video interface very much prefigures the rise of cyberpunk, which is happening basically exactly now. Burning Chrome, William Gibson wrote that in 82. He writes a neuromancer in 84. So basically as William Gibson is inventing this subgenre of science fiction, of literary science fiction, Cronenberg is one that assumes driven by the same societal questions and the same thoughts about what, are we doing by building this alternate universe of imaginary demons and uh, how can it wind up uh, slurping in your, your midsection and that, yes, there's even a bio implant gun, but not one you want your character to have not a good gun. It's a bad gun. And I think that that is really what does make it an essential because it along with alien, I feel like really sort of drives the aesthetic of a lot, not just of the good movies, but of a lot of the B and C tier movies are aping Geiger and Cronenberg as signifiers. And that this, you know, question about the human interrelating with the, not just the electrical, which is bad enough, but interrelating with this 
artificial demonic intelligence, while it, you know, obviously goes back to Colossus, the Forbin project is more personal now in this cyberpunk era. And uh, it becomes uh, ever more a question of not, is the government building a big evil computer to go to Jupiter? It's, are we all building big evil computers just to do everything? Right. And the feeling here is not that it's an artificial intelligence, but just a delivery mechanism right. for the nastiness for of the people, the, the sort of the, yeah, but the human evil also projected out into this sort of, you know, demonic uh, sensibility. Right. So yeah, it's a super interesting movie. I again, think that it works vastly more as horror while you're watching it, but it has such a powerful impact on science fiction that I have no objection to having gone to a rep house before we go back to the future. And by the future, we mean 1985. And by back to the future, we mean back to the future. Robert Zemeckis film, Michael J. Fox travels back to the uh, palmy times of 1955 in a DeLorean, a time traveling DeLorean and uh, hijinks Robin ensue, as I understand. Right. This is a movie that I think is such a perfect classic film of its kind its structure is perfect michael j fox just embodies that character as few actors ever embody a part it's full of endlessly quotable bits uh christopher lloyd of course is magnificent crispin glover is somehow contained which is something of a miracle itself i'm sure but robin you don't class it as an essential and i would love to hear that argument i'm not going to say i, I disagree I, I thought you weren't either or you would have both faced it well i mean that I, you started it so <laughs> you d- you defend it first i think all those things are true it's a exponent of sort of 80s pop cinema i'm not sure i i guess that just shows my my distance from 80s pop cinema or the fact that it doesn't it's time travel aspect it's it's core to the thing but i don't know if it's telling us anything about time travel or if it had an idea about the future or anything like that it it's it's not science fictiony in that way so i don't dislike the film i just didn't uh, i don't think it's a masterpiece so for those scoring at home wishing yourself into the past science fiction time traveling delorean fantasy all right, right i'm not saying it's fantasy i'm <laughs> saying that not what essential. it does with its sf elements is just sort of you know sort of chirpy sitcom stuff so right so i, I don't know I, I don't have a cultural analysis around it or can a, look at how it presents an idea or connects us to other films it's cute it's nice i mean the cultural analysis is what you said that it is the embodiment of the sunny optimistic reagan 80s and in that way i think maybe you react to it differently than i did or i do but i feel like when you didn't bold it in our list to say it's non-essential i thought very hard and said is it essential does it really drive science fiction film or is it just a super terrific science fiction film that was made and then moves past and if i'm putting together a class in even in 80s science fiction is it it, how far down the curriculum do i have to go before i put it on and i really couldn't bring myself to bolt it so in some sense i feel like it's it's very lightness and airiness right. maybe we're being unfair although so you I, mentioned it in class but you, you wouldn't assign it we would not assign it as watching unlike the next film which again we've talked about films if this was a two-segment show <laughs> if we're doing the top 10 science fiction the essentials uh this next one absolutely is it's uh brazil also in 1985 from terry gilliam and this is i feel like the Neplu ultra of uh dystopia movies and it is also hilarious and uh robin you want to tell us about brazil yeah so it it basically recapitulates the themes of 1984 and uh, fahrenheit 451 it borrows 
the satirical edge of Truffaut's film of uh, Fahrenheit 451 and then blows it up as a, a member of Monty Python would. It is a visual feast, a crazy phantasmagoria of images. It is probably the best expression of Gilliam's sort of connection of the uh, personal creative dreamer being crushed by the totalitarian, in this case, state, and therefore has a lot of focus on how people are complicit in the existence of tyranny in a way that, again, he's not inventing this. He's just presenting it on a giant wide scale. Jonathan Price is brilliant as the protagonist. There are great little cameo roles, including uh, Robert De Niro as a revolutionary, Catherine Helmond as his regime-embracing mother. That's uh, the Jonathan Price character's mother. Most of all, Michael Palin as a great example of the evil with a smiling face. Yep. The feckless bureaucracy. Yes. And it's written not only by uh, Gilliam and his regular screenwriting partner, Charles McEwen, but Tom Stoppard as well. And his uh, focus on totalitarianism goes through the rest of uh, his work as a playwright as well. Yeah. And it also has uh, the visual invention that you associate with Terry Gilliam. But I don't think that even the other Gilliam movies that we're thinking about is that visual invention so present and so... Uh, discipline is not the word that I want to say, but so everything is magnetized towards one story and one sensibility in a way that other Gilliam is just, well, this would look cool. Let's throw it up on the screen. It does look cool. He's right to do that. But in Brazil, it it all drives toward that ideological point that, you know, art versus tyranny point that humanity versus tyranny point that he's making with the movie. And so it feels more powerful in a way than even other great visual feast Gilliam movies do as well as, as you, everything you say is, is true about Jonathan price and about the script. And it is just, even when I saw it in 1985, I, I knew that I was seeing something amazing. And then the uh, endless sort of controversy over, you know, which version in the studio butchering Gilliam's vision and the rest of it has, has only demonstrated that it's such an important movie that uh, people still fight about it and is no less relevant now than it was in 1985. And some would argue vastly more. Yeah. If you get the Criterion Deluxe box, it includes the butchered cut that the studio wanted to uh, release, which was not only quite terrible, but uh, had a tacked on happy ending. A literal travesty of the film. Now we're coming to a film that is a great war film, a great horror film, a great science fiction film, and also probably the most interesting sequel of all time, mm -hmm. because it is a prime case of creating a sequel to something and shifting it into another genre, specifically the one I already mentioned, the war genre, and that's because we're talking about Aliens by James Cameron in 1986, taking over the reins of that franchise, or turning it into a franchise, mm -hmm. a tough one to crack ever after Cameron, and taking it over from Ridley Scott. So uh, Sigourney Weaver deepens and heroically transforms her performance as Ripley. So it's a genuine, you know, leap ahead for that character. And it's a great example of the horror movie where there's the one person who knows what's going on, knows what needs to be done. And there's a whole bunch of jarheads and a corporate dweeb around who are preventing the right thing from being done. And so it has that great emotional dynamic, that great through line hook. And then, of course, it's just an incredibly... Uh, well-realized on a plastic level, paranoid pursuit, a lost patrol war movie. Yeah, it is a, the beats of the war movie and the beats of the horror film hit each other so perfectly in this. 
in, in a way that very few horror films or war films have ever done after this. And it is just a remarkable example of that tonal shift, as you talk about, while still remaining the sort of bleak blackness, uh, not just of space, but of humanity uh, at the heart of the Alien franchise. Cameron uh, really knocks it out of the park. Even at the time before Cameron was Cameron, we were all very impressed. And now when you watch that movie and you watch the sort of inevitability of it unfold, it works almost on a, a Homeric scale because the flaws of, are not necessarily, oh, acid will eat through you, but they're the human flaws. There's arrogance, there's hubris, there's uh, insane uh, corporate dweebiness. Paul Reiser probably got, you know, eggs thrown at him for decades after playing uh, the corporate stooge in, uh, in Aliens, but he does it uh, magnificently and with such... A, a sort of, a, a, you know, you, he's gum on your shoe. You can't shake him off. And he, he keeps coming back in. And it's just a remarkable uh, example of storytelling and yes, acting. He's the, he's the aggressive shallowness of ca- capitalism. Exactly. He's, he's so, he's so great in it that it's almost a two hander between him and Ripley. And they have, I don't know that they have a lot of scenes together, but whenever they do, the, the sort of the interesting meat of the story as a human story, getting away from the aliens and the cool space marines is also just as compelling in the same way that it was an alien when it was a story of maybe we're going to have an industrial action in this uh, space movie. Now it's like, well, maybe we're going to have some kind of wild, you know, examination of, of uh, corporate selfhood. And, and then, of course, we have a war movie instead, which is also super great. But it, it's an amazing triumph of, of putting a bunch of things together, all of them working. Obviously, the supporting cast of, of Marines is, is, is great too, because you couldn't have that movie without, uh, Michael Bean and Bill Paxton and, and uh, the other Marines just really bringing it in that sort of visceral lived in way that the, the crew of the Nostromo did in the first movie. And I think that is the real takeaway from Alien is if you're going to make another franchise, you know, populate it with recognizable, interesting humans who have a recognizable human task to do and then drop some sort of horrible chest bursting monster on them. Yeah. And then its final act is uh, also just sort of a object lesson in, in how to escalate to a big finish at the end. It's just brilliantly executed. Yeah. It's very strong. Greatest science fiction fights ever, right? 86 was a great year for cinematographers learning how to photograph goo. It's also typified by a Cronenberg movie that I'm going to mention in the right order, along with the other films of its year, and that's The Fly. We've talked about The First Fly, uh, and if you're going to put that on your essentials list, you also have to put one of the great remakes of all time, Mm -hmm. one in which the almost sort of silly premise of the uh, original, but uh, as we previously argued, you know, silly on purpose and great for that reason, is made more... Serious, which is, I think, a trick that has been too often done without understanding how to do it in the years since, and also made to reflect the worldview of its director in a way that you also almost never see in reboots that attempt to make a previously silly or beloved thing more serious in the time. And of course, this is a story in which uh, now it's Jeff Goldblum as the scientist who's messing with teleportation. Unfortunately, there's a fly in the other teleport pod, and in this one, it's not that he's just a dude with a fly, fly head, head. He's a, or, or a fly with a dude head, but a metamorphosis in, uh, of course, the true body horror Cronenbergian way. It's Gina Davis who sells the movie with her love for that character and 
And uh, John Getz also makes a nice sort of sleazy antagonist to, yep. to provide additional danger before the um, monster gets fully developed. Yeah, G- Gina Davis joins Shelley Duvall in the all-timer Wives of Horror Victims slash Protagonists in cinema. Uh, she's I don't know that she ever gets credit for how good an actress she can be because she's been in a lot of very forgettable films. But in a movie like this, you, you really understand why she was the it girl for the most of the rest of the century in a lot of ways. And it was a terrific performance. And it's sort of a tribute to it that watching her act is as fascinating as watching Jeff Goldblum fill up with fly goo. She absolutely grounds it in a way that I think other Cronenberg films maybe don't as well because they don't, they don't have that strong, strong plant in the human world that I think you need for the body horror to work as well as it does in the fly. And finally, let's uh, finish off 1986. Speaking of sequels, and so we're beginning to enter the era. We've uh, had a little break from Isaiah's and what we're getting instead are franchises. And we're getting to the point where sometimes a franchise will continue along and some of them will be not so great, but they'll be good enough that there'll be another one and the other one might be good. And uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, uh, directed by its uh, co-star Leonard Nimoy, is, I think, perhaps the pinnacle of the surprisingly good sequel with a high number behind it. And, of course, that's the one where there's uh, a horror in Kirk's future because uh, this uh, force shows up expecting whales. There are no whales, so they have to go back into the past to find some whales. And, of course, time-traveling hijinks ensue. You could also argue that... This is another example of shifting the genre of a sequel because this one is a comedic romp. But of course, there were comedic romps on the original series as well. Well, that's one of the things that a television series can do is shift tone episode to episode or a proper episodic show can do. Uh, It's harder to do now. But yeah, so this would be one of the funny ones. And Star Trek, of course, uh, would always go to planets where they had some hilarious bunch of things going on. Oh, look at these ridiculous cowboy planet. Look at this ridiculous gangster planet. Right. The Trouble with Tribbles is, of course, famous. Right. And now this is the ridiculous Earth in 1986 planet. And again, all time travel movies are actually about the present. And this is more about the present than most time travel movies. And because it is literally interrogating the present from the perspective of Star Trek's future, it takes the thing that we keep behind the screen in most Star Treks and we bring it forward. And that is what makes it a great movie and uh, something worthy of discussion as a science fiction cinema essential, as opposed to Back to the Future, which doesn't interrogate the present. It just assumes not unreasonably the present is good and you want it to continue, but it doesn't, you know, put it against anything except an equally cartoonish 1950s. In this case, the Starfleet present that has been built up over uh, a whole TV series and a bunch of movies now directly interrogates our present. And that's the job of science fiction is to say, well, why isn't it as well as, but what if, and that is what the voyage home does not just in the overt ecological message about the whales, but the comedic romp has always got a point. It has always got, what is this weird barbarian goof planet and how is it ours? And that comes through, not just through the literal alien of Mr. Spock, but also through the by now alien to 1980s earth future people, Dr. McCoy, the most human, the most grounded, the most past minded of the Star Trek regulars Faced with the actual past is like, this is terrible. These people are barbarians. Let's go home. And that is the real message of Star Trek. And uh, it's the it's, it's why this movie, over and above the fact that it just completely works as a film, is why it is great Star Trek and great science fiction and a science fiction cinema essential. Right. 
And the thing that makes it work as, as a film is, well, first of all, the pacing, but most of all, the <laughs> affection that we have built up for those characters and the actors' comedic timing with each other. And, and they earn it. They don't coast on it, which will happen in other installments of this franchise. As you say, they, they take that affection that we've built up and they repay it and they redouble it and they play with it in an interesting and captivating and funny way, as opposed to just saying, well, by definition, you like Kirk. Let's watch him do something really stupid. Right. And speaking of timing and pacing, it's time for us to pace our way out of this segment into the uh, next one waiting for us on the other side. In Delta Green... Cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to enter into that most ill-defined of huts, the hut where we're not ever really sure what's going on or what fits or what doesn't, the hut where crackpotism meets alternate history meets UFOs. We do know, however, that we're looking out a window, and out the window there's an alien big cat screaming on the moor. Over in the corner there's a Nordic alien, there's a gray alien, they're having kombucha together, and this time I think they're sitting with a third interesting figure, sort of diminutive, perhaps a, a little bit here suit. Because beloved backer Eric Parks would like to know about the possible survival of Homo florensiensis. And this is better known as the Hobbit. If it turns out if this hominid does exist in our current day, I think they'll be mad when they hear about the whole Hobbit nonsense that will mm -hmm. offend them. But there's a retired uh, University of Alberta professor who thinks he has found uh, strong cultural evidence for, if not the current survival of these hominids, the uh, perhaps recent uh, survival. Right. I guess to set the backdrop, in 2003, a Australian scientist uh, named Mike Morewood, leading a team, discovered seven Homo floresiensis skeletons, not fossils, and they were found on the island of Flores, which is in Indonesia. It's a little larger than Connecticut. It's right spang on the equator. So it's got lots of jungles and whatnot. They dated the bones to uh, between 100,000 and 50,000 years ago. And the current best evolutionary guess, although they're still yelling and screaming about it in the pages of learned journals, is that Homo floresiensis split off from Homo erectus roughly 2 million years ago at the same time that Homo habilis, our direct ancestors, did. So. Right. Because it's, it was a gobsmackingly 
surprising discovery. Yeah. Because this is like, there's probably one or two species that we have no record of in between those things. So that's really hard to know where they are. And uh, one of the comparisons we've made is that actually people would be less surprised to find the skeletons of actual space aliens than to have found these particular hominids. And one of the reasons that people were so gobsmacked is that the skeletons were tiny. They were three foot seven, the tallest of them. And now by comparison, Florence Pugh, who shares initials with Homo florensiensis and is also tiny, is five foot four. Well, I'm glad you're using the now accepted Pugh standard for hominid medicine. I've been using the Florence Pugh standard for years, Robin. I don't know where you are, but three foot seven is more like a three-year-old child. If you're thinking about rough physical sizes. They're about 50 pounds, uh, they assume, which means they're actually a little smaller than Homo erectus, their putative ancestor. And people have suggest that they're tiny, not least because of insular dwarfism, which is that if you live on an island with fewer resources, you wind up evolving to be tiny to use less of them. And this is why the smallest people on Earth that are Homo sapiens are like on the Andaman Islands and other island cultures, or whatever you call them, ethnicities, I guess. And they're all still much taller than this, though. Uh, An Andaman Islander is four, four and a half feet tall, and that's like the shortest average height of a person in the world. And so we're still, Andaman Islanders are still dunking on Homo forensiensis all the time. The, the rest of it, they, they don't have chins. Their arms are wired up different than ours. So they walk in sort of a hunched, shrugging posture. They have big flat feet, which is maybe another reason they got nicknamed hobbits. They have a tiny little chimp sized brain, but of course chimps are scary smart and they are able to nap stone tools uh, because there's lots of stone tools found in that cave with the skeletons. So this is where the Homo florensiensis little family uh, hung out and uh, they made a ton of stone tools. Those tools stop, you know, you can't date them much farther than say 70,000 years at the absolute latest. And probably the assumption is that Homo florensiensis, who we found again, no more samples of uh, went extinct in 30,000 BC when Homo sapiens came to Flores. And just as we did to the Neanderthals, and the Denisovians said, uh, we'll have that now go away. Right. And, of course, there's way more physical evidence of them than of Denisovans, who right, yeah. we have a tooth. <laughs> right. A, a little tiny piece of a skull, I think. Yeah. yeah so, the, so, the Florensiensis, it's a real thing. They're genuinely a hominoid. I think the arguments that they're Homo sapiens who went through weird, you know, genetic uh, diseases and whatnot has been pretty much quashed. But what happened to the rest of them and what's going on? Were they anywhere else than Flores is still an open question. And this is where, as you say, Gregory Forth is saying, well, they didn't just disappear. And there was a brief theory that they'd lived down to 12,000 BC, but that was because they mistook the stratigraphy of the cave. But Forth was, you know, as we all were thrilled by the notion and thought maybe they're still around and went off to Flores and found the uh, Lyo tribe or the Leo and says that they have a creature called the Lyhoa, which resembles the Florensis. And he says there's 30, he reports on at least 30 sightings of them in his book Between Ape and Human. But of course, Forth, you know, he's been guessing other things were the Florensiensis for a while. He thinks the Ebu Gogo, which is a different weird little monkey cryptid of the Naga people or Naja people of Flores were Floriensis. Ebu Gogo means grandpa glutton, which I think tells you that they're probably um, angry little monkeys or angry little apes. And uh, likewise, that there is another cryptid called the Orang Pendek in Sumatra and that 
they're short and hairy. Maybe they're Florenziensis. So he's in a hurry to see Florenziensis everywhere. So take that, I guess, when you're mixing your Gregory Fourth Trust cocktail. Right. And I think he's moved off the Ryan Pendek thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's found a better one, one that the whole book can be made of that's actually on Flores in his defense. So, yeah, the, a lot of the book is about the anthropology of the Leo and how they conceive of people and animals. Their notion is that animals are people who went into a bad magic place and were changed by the gods. So monkeys began as people, and then they probably did some kind of monkey thing, or they touched a monkey tree, and now they're monkeys. And yeah, that everything the first animals, and then everything else is a devolution from that. Right, that the Komodo dragons are people, and the long-tailed macaque is a people, and the horrible giant rat they have on Flores is a yes, people. Yes, because rats get bigger on islands. Yeah, that's the worst. Uh, right. stupid but they rats. make a distinction between animals and spirits. They don't believe that animals are supernatural. They're just, this is an animal. You interact with an animal. And they don't think of the Laihoa as a human. They think of it as, as an animal. Right. And so that sort of comes to the part where Forth is looking at oral tradition and oral culture and looking for context into it, not just accepting it all at face value, but accepting it as having some value. And also the fact that, you know, 30 people say that they saw it, including one person who uh, claims to have found uh, remains is, you know, sort of central to his claim. Now, on the other hand, lots of other people say they would have, uh, other people would have seen this creature if it actually existed. There's 2 million people uh, live on Flores. On, on an island the size of Connecticut, I remind you. <laughs> the island the size of Connecticut. And then the counter argument to that is that, well, yeah, but it's, it's not laid out like Connecticut. It's a long mountainous forested island that where people are so isolated from one another that there are five languages, that there are five different cultures. And Forth argues that the place that you would go to find these creatures if they existed are the heavily forested areas in the mountains where people don't go. Uh, people who live on Flores are increasingly moving away from the wilderness, so they'd have less chance to uh, cite these things. And also, according to the uh, the, the Lyo, the Laiho, are, are, they're bad news. You don't go looking for them. Why would you go looking for them? Yeah, you might turn into one. Yeah. And the other counter argument is that unlike, say, Bigfoot, unlike, you know, your traditional hominid cryptids, there actually is a fossil record of, well, on, I guess a, a how, how do we even say instead of fossil record, <laughs> right. they're not technically fossils. In the, fossils, in the uh, paleoanthropological record. They were there at one point, And so there's uh, more of a, a trail. Well, I mean, there's... There's Giganthropus, which could be Bigfoot, but that would be a different hut, either this hut again or science. But, you know, there are big hominids or big uh, hominoids anyway that also existed that are very Bigfooty. So that is him palming a card. I, I think that the odds are he's wrong, but it is fun to believe. I, I think that we all agree that that's sort of the point of the lifting hut. And we have both now. We have a potential mass grave of Floresiensis that Forth has reported that he uh, found a structure in Western Flores close to where all the sightings are and close to the cave that they were originally found in, their bones. He said a mass grave of Laihoa that uh, are maybe out there, sort of elephant's graveyard style, but whoever owns the, the structure, the building or the stone cairn, I don't know what kind of structure it was, doesn't want anyone tramping on their land and digging stuff up. So. Or rather, there's two owners. There's, a, oh, there's a property dispute. And it's not that they don't want an excavation, but they were unable to come to terms on the exact 
I assume, money that would be exchanged for that. Right. And fourth is different from your basic amateur cryptozoologist, not just because he's a real a, scientist at one point, a genuine scientist, but also he views the prospect of anyone actually finding living Floresiensis terrifying. That it would be the worst possible thing for them because, you know, then there would be, uh, do you capture them? Do you interact with them? Like, would any contact with humans of any kind be good for them at all? Uh, undoubtedly not. I'm sure they also avoid humans as being bad news that you want to try and avoid. Well, as as do long-tailed macaques. I don't think you have to be a, a Floresiensis to figure out that people are bad news, especially but, if yeah. they're <laughs> wandering around shopping down your forest. Yeah. I think every other uh, charismatic megafauna has uh, learned made the same basic us. decision. Yeah. Um, we also have a cool conspiracy uh, in that the Floresiensis bones were re- briefly removed from the uh, university where they were being kept and hidden away by the Indonesian paleoanthropologist Taoku Jacob, the grandfather, the great uh, man of Indonesian paleoanthropology, apparently. And it took the uh, combined protests of all the world's scholars saying you can't do that to get them returned. And when they were returned, they were all banged up. They'd been busted up and glued together badly, and they were still missing two leg bones. So if Teuku Jacob is motivated by something besides overweening academic pride, and I'm not sure you need to come up with another motivation, but maybe those leg bones will let you do magic, especially maybe in connection with that mass grave, and uh, summon up these older, more terrifying things that even the Flores hobbits feared even more than they feared people, or that you could somehow tap into some elder, maybe some elder thing DNA that has been laid down in all of our bones, but humans have, uh, you know, covered it over with corn syrup and auto exhaust, but the Floresiensis, it's like the, you know, the, the pre-war steel, right? That the radiation count is too low and the Floresiensis bones have got stronger earth magic or stronger elder thing magic than uh, regular human bones. It's the best kind of human sacrifice. Right. And of course the mystery graveyard is just a huge, beautiful hook unto itself that right. might it's be amazing. looking for that or looking for another one and digging down and finding it's uh, the secret passage maze. And, and you can have bad guy, you know, paleoanthropologists who are there, sort of your bellocks who are, who are your rivals. And yet you suspect that they're up to no good. And uh, you have to, of course, uh, disturb the graveyard for nothing but good purposes, or maybe you're just trying to mess with them. And then that course of messing with them reveals the occult secret of Homo floresiensis. Right. You know, they might be living in a cave right underneath. No one would suspect that. Well, on that note, please uh, respect all hominids. And uh, if you do that, we'll be very, very good to you and come back next week with another one of these here podcasts. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent the extinction of this podcast by joining such survival-minded backers as... Jan Zaleski. Chris McCarthy. Dan O'Hanlon. Eric Parks. And Evan Hughes. Where this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, uh, we will talk about stuff.